0: Amen. So uh, today we are looking at a passage. Remember, uh, if you were here last year, you you may remember that we spent all of last year's Advent season those four weeks in Isaiah. We covered Isaiah two, nine, eleven, and I think forty. And I'm I'm not sure, or no, we're covering forty today. Sorry, uh, it was I think sixty three last year. Um, I'm getting the the readings a little bit messed up from year to year. But today's reading in Isaiah forty is a message of hope. And uh, a promise of god 's mercy in the midst of the nation of israel 's exile in the in Babylon, and so uh, last week we t- we looked at how uh, God was right to send his people into exile, and the message of christ 's coming is a twofold uh, story in which God both came and brought his people out of exile once, and in Christ's coming, which we get ready for in Advent, which we anticipate in Advent, he also is bringing his people out of exile. But unlike the exile in which we uh, were in Babylon, this exile is a spiritual exile. It's an exile by which uh, we are enslaved to sin. We're kept in bondage, as it were and in understanding that we can read these passages these old testament passages and see how they both speak to the situation uh as it stood that day and also uh, a message about Jesus Christ. So that's the overarching theme, that's the narrative or the interpretive framework by which we're going to talk about these passages. Now, admittedly, uh, on the cursory level, at a surface level, this stuff doesn't have anything to do with Jesus Christ, in that, you know, he's talking about a, a desert. Mountains, valleys, flowers, grass. I mean this is this Jesus Christ's name is not mentioned here, but I want to demonstrate to you how understanding passages of scripture allows you to see how Isaiah by the Holy Spirit is actually prophesying not only about the return from exile, but also about the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And and having done that, I believe we'll we'll be able to uh worship in this season of Advent even better. Than if we had ignored this passage. Now, this passage is uh, uh, divided into about four sections, and those sections that we're going to look at today is, of course, this promise return. The whole entire passage is a promise, it's a gift uh, from God, it's a word from the Lord given to a people who had just been prophesied uh, that they would be going into exile. The previous chapter, Isaiah 39, they're told you're going into exile for your sins. You've you've worshipped idols. You've you have played the harlot, and because of that, God is sending you into exile. And then Isaiah 40 is a pro- is a promise, kind of on the coattails of that message of exile, that there will be a return. And so having uh, having confidence that God in his judgment remembers mercy, we can understand this passage as God uh, demonstrating why and explaining why he's taking them into exile and also why he is right to bring them back from exile. That is, when Israel goes into exile, she is not disciplined in such a way as to produce obedience, but rather the Lord has mercy upon her and so he promises a return. Uh, We're also going to look at God's restoration. That is what he's actually going to do to the land of Israel. We talk about the promised land a lot. You you may have heard that term, the promised land. What God does to the land in this passage, of course, is a metaphor. He's actually not causing mountains to literally melt and valleys literally to be filled up with silt or something like this. It's a metaphor what he's going to be doing in the spiritual condition of Israel. We're gonna look also at the idea that the prophet here uh, is told to call to the people of Israel to have her consider the mortality that each person in the nation faces. That is, you and I and everyone you've ever known, everyone who you ever will know will at one point die. And wither like the the grass and the flower and so in considering that mortality that weakness of human flesh god then gives uh, a message of hope in that he is coming near and that all flesh will see god's glory together and so understanding that both as as speaking about god coming near in the exile and also christ coming near in the incarnation which we celebrate at christmas that is the the meta framework or the narrative for today Um, So, let's get into the text. Uh, This oracle is understood as a twofold fulfillment, both Israel's return from the Babylonian captivity and Christ coming in the flesh. And because of this, God is giving a message to Israel, which includes a uh, invocation, a command for the prophet to comfort the people of God. The, The prophet is told by God, comfort, comfort. And the reason why it says comfort, comfort, two times, it is a very sure thing. God wishes for his people to understand that comfort, the the desire for uh, God to to allay their fears or to put their fears to rest is a sure thing. This is not a possible word from the Lord. This is a sure word from the Lord in that it begins with comfort, comfort my people. You may remember in the gospels when Jesus says in the New it's translated in the New King James as verily, verily, or in other translations as truly, truly. Whenever you hear that repetition, it's the Lord saying, this is a sure word. And so in in the beginning of this passage, we see comfort, comfort my people. And so this is to be understood as God's or Yahweh's uh, command in bringing Israel out of captivity. This is not to be understood as Israel paying her penance and therefore being let out of prison. This is God showing them mercy. Both the exile out of the land was mercy and the return from exile was mercy. Therefore, he says rightly, comfort, comfort. And we see that idea of twofold blessing again in the next few verses. In in verse two, he, at the end of the verse, it says that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now that doesn't mean that the Lord has punished Israel twice when she should have only punished been punished once. In fact, it is God's mercy that He takes the people out of the land when they sin. Earlier in the Sunday school hour, we had talked about how uh, the, the the nation of Israel. Uh, is in a long trajectory or a long line of people, uh, either patriarchs or people groups, which are God's regents or, or rulers in the earth. What happens in the Garden of Eden? Uh, that story begins with God taking Adam and Eve, forming them, and then after forming them, placing them into the garden. And what is the tree that they are not supposed to eat from? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Right. And that tree is the tree by which they sin and transgress God's law, the only command that they had received. And by transgressing that, God removes them from the garden, and that removal from the garden, though for a time it is an exile, it's a penalty, God's desire is to bring a return to the garden. He wishes to have a garden sanctuary, a holy city on the earth, by which and through which he will... Uh, as it says, bring the kingdom of God like leaven or yeast, and it will fill the whole uh, dough or earth. And so here we see Israel coming into the land. In Deuteronomy 4, it says that, that the people, the children who did not rebel in the wilderness, but their, their parents rebelled in the wilderness, but they did not. It says in that text that they do not know good from evil. And so this holy innocence that God is placing in the people of Israel is the necessary ingredient before they are placed into the promised land. What does that tell us? It tells us that God's desire is that the promised land would be a new garden of Eden. And in understanding that metaphor, that symbol, that type, we see that God's exile out of the land, kicking Israel out of the land so that they could not rebel in the land and corrupt it was actually a blessing from God, though it was because of their sin. And so we rightly understand that when God judges us, when God chastises us, as the New Testament teaches, we should count it as a blessing. Because it proves that we are sons of God. If God would have not exiled Israel, if he would not have made Babylon come and take her away, then it would have demonstrated that God had utterly forsaken Israel. But because God actually came and judged her, it proves that he still desires her and still has claim to her. That's what the book of Hosea is all about. Hosea, the prophet of the Lord, imagine receiving this as your calling from God. He's commanded to go and marry a prostitute. And the prostitute continues to go after all these other guys and and she whores herself out. And Hosea is living a prophetic witness that this is what Yahweh is doing for Israel. Israel has gone and worshipped other gods. She has established high places and Asherah poles by which she has forsaken Yahweh. And yet Yahweh, because of his great love for her, decides to redeem her again. And so, in this passage, we see when, when Isaiah is saying that she has received double, it means that she has received grace in the exile, and she's receiving grace again in the return. God is not punishing Israel in the sense that she will be left to her own devices. That would be the greatest punishment. But in fact, the punishment by which she is delivered from her uh, from her vices, that is grace upon grace. And so we see that this prophet is giving a message of comfort. The whole message of comfort is embodied both in this chapter and the one before. Both exile and return are grace from the Lord. So sinful man seeks retaliation, but God extends mercy. Think about it like this. If you were uh, creating this nation, surely by their wanderings, you would wish to, to punish her and, and be done with it, Right? Whenever you're making something and it goes away, at some point when it gets too messed up, whatever you're making, you throw it out. There is there is a point for, for us in which when we're working on something, there's a point of no return and you have to just be, dispense with it, be done with it, and start afresh. This is not what God does. In fact, his mercy is so great that he gives her double mercy, double grace when she reserve, deserves double judgment. So this time is over. This is where the, the the prophecy at the at this point the prophecy is speaking of the time of captivity being over, and God gives uh, Isaiah this this call of return. It says that the grace that she received it. It's not only been dispensed in the actual circumstances, but the reason it's been dispensed is that it was given from eternity past. What does Ephesians tell us? It says that before the foundations of the world, those who have heard of Christ, those who have received Jesus Christ and come into him, those people were chosen from before the foundations of the world. Like we talked about in the Sunday School Hour, God understands and declares the end from the beginning. He knows the end of the story, and so he already has grace for his people. Now, that doesn't give them a license to sin, but instead it should actually cause them to pursue him all the more. And so Jerusalem, as I mentioned earlier, is a type of the bride of Christ, and she has received remissions of sins through the future coming of Jesus Christ. That is, it is not, uh, we're not to understand the story of of Israel and Yahweh as being different than the story of Christ and the bride. Israel, faithful Israel, is always part of the bride, and there's a continuation by which it carries over. And so, in in this chapter, we see that Isaiah is then giving a command to the people that, that they should be comforted, and then he goes into detail as to why. So not, as only, not only has God called off the dogs, he's he said that Babylon will let you go, but also he himself is coming to visit. This is, this is where we begin to pick up today's message of, of how it applies to the season of Advent. God is coming near. He says in verse three, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Why, do, why does there need to be a highway? because there's going to be a chariot ride now that will make sense if you remember what we talked about in ezekiel which I'll mention in, in a second verse 4 every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be made low the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain why do you need plains you need plains to sow in verse 5 and all the uh, and the glory of the lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the lord has spoken god has decreed that he is coming and the faithlessness of israel will not stop his arrival god wishes to come and reside amongst his people there's a need for a highway because yahweh is journeying with his people Um, In the book of Ezekiel, chapters 1 and 2, we talked about, uh, as well as Isaiah 6, they talk about uh, Yahweh's chariot. Do you remember this? If you were with us, you may remember it. But we talked about how the cherubim, the ones, the four living creatures who are around God's throne, they have wheels in wheels, right? And that's very hard for our natural minds to understand. Of course, it's either a spiritual reality or a metaphor. Either one, uh, there's a wheel in a wheel. And these uh, form the four corners of God's moving tabernacle. Why does Ezekiel give us this picture of Yahweh's moving tabernacle, the reason is, is because Israel is about to be expelled from the land. Ezekiel 1 takes place way before uh, any uh, any of these prophecies come to pass. And so Ezekiel is saying, Yahweh is going to go up with his people into exile. What does that mean? That means when God judges his people, he does not leave them alone. When God sends his people into exile, he does not leave them alone in such a way as to leave them there forever, but rather he, being the suffering servant, encounters their expulsion from the garden in a way. And so there needs to be a highway because God's chariot again is going to come and he is going to lead his people back into the land. The land, it says, liquefies, so to speak, before him. I put liquefies in quotes because uh, we understand that the mountains shake at the the presence of the Lord. They become, uh, the scripture says, like wax, and they melt. And so in this place, Yahweh, as he comes, holy, burning, full of fire, he comes and brings down the mountains and raises up the valleys, the raising of the valleys speaks, of course, of the justification of those who are oppressed the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the alien. It is not God's will that a social structure should exist in which a particular, either people group or a type of person or a category of person, should be oppressed by something else. And in In all of Israel's sins, multiple times over, the Lord through the prophets chastises her because she oppressed the widow and she oppressed the orphan. Now, is this not what happens today in the slaughter of abortion? Do we not slaughter millions and millions of people in such a way as to determine or to establish a categorical oppression. Surely this is the reason why we cry, come Lord Jesus. There are wrong things that need to be put right. And so the promise of Yahweh's coming to Israel to, to return her to the land is that every valley will be raised up. And then it says that every mountain and hill will be made low. This is speaking, of course, about idolatry. Where does idolatry happen? God in his law commands the Israelites that they are not allowed to worship on a high mountain and that they are not allowed to establish a great number of steps up to their high place, lest their nakedness be exposed. And what that means, that phrase, lest their nakedness be exposed, is that man's establishing of high places on which to worship is idolatry in that man is attempting through that geography, through that temple to reach into the heavens on his own. That's the message that we understand being, uh, in Genesis six in, in, uh, in Babylon. And so God is coming and he's saying every mountain, which Israel has established every high place, it says here in, in this, uh, Translation Every hill, it will be made low. God, in taking his people out of the land, is cleaning house, and as he brings her back in, he will surely put everything right. In the Exodus, we know that God glorified himself over Pharaoh. In in the book of Exodus, it says, uh, "Yahweh says that I will gain glory over Pharaoh uh, when I, you know, destroy his army and his chariots." I'm paraphrasing there, but but God will gain glory, and so also in this coming, just like God brought. Israel up from Egypt into the promised land, taking her through a period of the wilderness. So also he is going with them out of Babylon and into the promised land. Once again, the return from exile therefore is like the original Exodus. God is going to get glory, not only over Pharaoh, but now also over Baal and Ashtoreth. This is what God is doing in putting, putting to level all of the mountains and all of the valleys. Now, There's a movie coming out, I think it's this Friday, called Exodus, Gods and Kings. Now, before you all scoff, let me just say that there has never been an adequately done version of the Exodus story, which demonstrates rightly the warfare by which God destroyed Egypt. Now, I don't care too much whether the story is accurate to the biblical text unless they do something weird like you know there's other gods or Yahweh feels bad and he needs to be you know vindicated what i want to see from that movie and i hope i hope to, i hope they do this i haven't seen the movie of course i don't have a an advanced screening uh i hope that they get this right that there is a terrible war by which god destroys and utterly smashes uh, Egypt, And I have a little bit of hope that they'll do it because in the trailer, and this if you haven't seen the trailer, at least see the trailer. There's a place in, in the trailer, the one that I saw, where Pharaoh establishes that the actual dilemma. He says, there is no God but me. I am God. And that's the point of the Exodus. God, in smashing Pharaoh, destroys all the other gods. He destroys the entire mythology of Egypt and demonstrates, through the ten plagues, his glory over and against their idolatry. I don't know how close they'll stay to the biblical text, but I think they're going to get that right. Uh, It seems to be the case. But in this story, in God returning Israel out of Babylon, he's doing the same thing. God is getting glory. That's what it says in verse five, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. How will it be revealed? He will reveal it in bringing her out of her sin and idolatry and into true spiritual worship. She will really be the people of God in the land that God has chosen. Now, um, this, this chapter, of course, is moving into a a period in which God tells the people through the prophet to consider their own mortality. Just like uh, all the gods will die in Yahweh's coming close, so also eventually all men will die. Now, this death is not necessarily a judgment on a particular sin. This is a death on mankind's, uh, sorry, this is a judgment on all of mankind's sin in a way, but this death is even what Jesus Christ comes to undo. We, uh, we have a song, in fact, we, we sang it uh, this morning, uh, Born That We May No Longer Die. This is what Jesus Christ comes to undo. But the prophet here does not explicitly make reference to the fact that God will not only undo the idolatry, he will also undo the death which faces every man. He simply just invokes the idea. And these words are extremely uh, important to understand. Um, in verse 6 he says a voice says cry and I said what shall I cry all flesh is like grass and its beauty is like the flower of the field think about that for a second we talked last week and I gave the the image have you ever mowed the lawn what happens after a day or two after you mow the lawn there's if you didn't rake there's clumps of grass and if you've ever tried to start a fire and it hasn't rained that is like perfect material to start a fire with it is like chaff it is blown away often by the wind, and the flowers fading speaks of the terminability of life. That is, all life is coming to an end because it's been severed off from God. And so here, the prophet is calling his people to consider the end of their days. That is exactly what we see in John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist, in the Gospels, identifies himself as the voice in verse 3, a voice crying out in the wilderness. Now, this voice that is crying out in the wilderness is not just speaking about John the Baptist's lifestyle as an Essene, that was a, a religious sect at the time, That was, they were a zealous sect, they, they worshipped Yahweh, they tried to keep themselves pure, and, and John the Baptist being a Nazarite Essene, that is, someone who was devoted to Yahweh for a specific purpose, being a Nazarite, he ate locusts and wild honey. And he had a belt and a coat made of camel's hair. This is a world, you know, a wild-looking guy. Uh, if you've ever seen Duck Dynasty, imagine those guys actually instead of like suits and shirts and camo, uh, imagine them in like a wool rug and eating bugs. This is a this is an intense scene. Now, many people see that image of John the Baptist, they hear that idea that John the Baptist looked like a wild guy, but the reason John the Baptist looked that way is his dress, his garb, his, the way that he was costumed, if you will, and where he was living and what he was speaking about all spoke to Israel's sin, in that Israel herself, though she was in the promised land, was living as if she was in the wilderness. Everything is wrong, narratively speaking. Remember, God has, has taken Israel out of Egypt. She, through her rebellion, spent some time in the wilderness, and then he brings her rightly into the promised land. At the time that John the Baptist comes along, though, she is in the promised land, but spiritually speaking, she is in a wilderness. And that's why he says, I am crying, prepare the way of the Lord. The reason he says that he is one in the wilderness is he is indicting all of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious rulers, and the false king of, of Herod. He is speaking to Israel saying, You are in the wilderness, and the reason uh, you know that is not only the words that I'm speaking, but the way that I'm living and the, the things that I'm wearing. This is God's prophetic decree through John the Baptist that Israel, though she was given every grace, has somehow wound up in a spiritual wilderness. And in in John the Baptist's message concerning Jesus Christ, interpreting Isaiah in a messianic way, he says that Jesus Christ is going to come and raise up every valley and lower every mountain. Jesus Christ comes to make the wrong things right. He comes to do away with the pharisaical burdens, that is, what the Pharisees attempted to do in in convincing the people that they should follow the law unto righteousness, not unto follow the law because of God's righteousness, that they uh, put on people these burdens. And Christ comes and he says, take on my burden. And so Jesus is coming against the mountains, the religious leaders of his day, and he comes to lift up those who are broken and contrite in heart. That is what John the Baptist is saying when he's saying every mountain will be lowered, every valley will be lifted up. He'll, He'll make things plain. And why is that? that is because before jesus christ every knee should bow there should be no other mountain above jesus christ when he comes and so in the preparation of the wilderness that that john the baptist is c- commanding to take place as he's going around and preaching he's saying make it easy for god to come in your midst you don't there's a phrase don't look a gift horse in the mouth now that phrase what what that phrase means is that if someone gives you a horse a very expensive gift you don't Inspect it in such a way and cause the gift giver such extreme burdens, so as to offend the gift giver. Right? This is maybe helpful for your children coming up in in Christmas when you receive gifts. Don't take it apart and then say, "Well, this is beige and I really wanted like gray." <laughs> you know, uh, be be content. And so. John the Baptist is saying a gift is coming. Yahweh himself in the flesh is coming into the land. Make every mountain low and let every valley be raised up. And so at this point, the, the message turns to uh, understanding our futility before the Lord. I have a, in my garden at home, uh, I have, well, in my garden at home, it's it's very cold uh, and it's it's all dead. At this point except for the trees which are sleeping Um, but the plants are all dead but in my garden inside in my house I have some orchids and if you've ever seen an orchid an orchid is one of the most beautiful flowers it is a very complex flower it is uh, it takes a long time and you have to you have to kind of woo the orchid to get it to bloom you have to treat it right you you can't can't give it too little water too little light it will it will get mad and then it'll start to wilt. And if somehow you have achieved this wonderful bloom, a set of, a set of flowers have, have started to open, if it gets too cold or too dry or too little light, all the blooms will just fall off right away. All the months of preparation that you've spent will eventually you know, result in one day you walk into your area here to look at the orchid and all the blooms are gone. Isn't this how life is? Now, even if you treat the orchid right all the times, the bloom only lasts for about two months, and then after that, it falls off anyways. This is what Isaiah is speaking of. He's not talking about orchids. That's just a, a metaphor, a, a, an analogy that I'm using. He's, but he's speaking of the flower in the field which fades. Even if you had a plant that stayed in bloom all year, at the end of the winter or at the end of the fall. Those flowers, those blooms will fall off and they will die. This is a sign of life. This is, this is God speaking to the futali- futility of man's attempts to become righteous on his own. This is speaking not only of those attempts, but also of man's attempts to even live apart from God verse 7 says the grass withers the flower fades when the breath of the lord blows on it now if you're a student of of scripture and you like language you may actually see this is a just a side point you may actually see in verse 7 and verse 8 a uh, a parallelism or a a parallel structure which proves the plenary inspiration of Scripture. That is, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Look at verse 7 and verse 8. They both begin with, the grass withers, the flower fades. And so those two are parallel. And whenever you see a parallelism that then in the next phrase diverges a little bit, then you see uh, that's the writer saying these things are equal or parallel. In verse 7, it's the breath of the Lord. And in verse 8, it's the word of our God. That's uh, just a little thing to look for when you're reading. But God here, through the prophet, is speaking to his people, and he is saying to them, consider the end of your life. We're, by these words, we are faced with a few things. Not only the end of our life, but also now, in, in thinking about the end of our life, we begin to think of what comes after life. Is there an afterlife, as it were? Is there anything beyond this life, or is all life futile and fading and surely gone like a vapor that evaporates in in the dry heat of the day. This is the command through God, through the prophet, that the people are to consider their days and to consider their end. Not only do we think of what comes after life, but in facing that question, we're also uh, faced with the question of how are we supposed to live in light of the fact that we will surely die at the end of our days, we will be like the grass, like the flower. We will fade, and uh, there's nothing you can do about it. Now, admittedly, like last week, that's a very depressing image. Uh, if you've ever read the, the poem by Shelley called Ozymandias, uh, I can't recite it from memory, but it's it's a great poem. And uh, in the poem, I'll, I'll paraphrase the story, basically this, this guy uh, comes in into the desert area. He's somewhere in Africa or, or the Middle East. And he arrives on on the scene and it says that there's this pillar and most of the statue has fallen off the pillar, but then there's this plaque. And on the plaque, it says, I am the great Ozymandias, king of kings. All ye who are mighty look upon my works and despair. And then the poem moves on to say that there's nothing else around it and everything else is sand and that's it. The point of the poem is that Ozymandias, the quote-unquote king of kings, isn't that mighty anymore. Even though he made these amazing statues, these amazing works of of military and economic might, architectural wonder, everything that Ozymandias stood for has been cut off. There's just a plaque in the desert partially cu- covered by sand. The point of the, the story of Ozymandias or the poem of Ozymandias is that you too will be like that, in that you will die and your life will fade. Now, the prophet here at this point, having invoked that idea, does not expressly uh, give a resolution to that terrible story, to that terrible thought that your life is going to end, everything that you work for will eventually fade. And yet, at this point, he just simply moves on. Isn't that how life is sometimes? You face terrible things, terrible situations. You're asking God for some sort of resolution, some sort of, what does this mean? You know, you you have these questions, and yet, seemingly, God does not answer right away. That's what takes place in this scripture. Isaiah presents... The futility of life—that is, at the end of your days, you, you will be as like the grass, as like the flower which fades—and then from there he moves on to a different subject. Now, thanks be to God, this different subject has every uh, every bit of meaning to the answer to the question: How should we live? What 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 is the point of life? The the resolution of that terrible uh, prospect that we will at the end of our days be like grass and be like flowers which fade is this, that God himself is coming in the midst. Isaiah is told at this point to go up to a mountain. And so we know from our uh, talks in the Old Testament that whenever a prophet goes up to the mountain, the reason is is because God is wishing that heaven would come down in some way, whether it's the establishing of the garden or the giving of the law at Pentecost or the, the sending of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. Here, Isaiah is told to go up to the mountain and to proclaim from the mountain that which is coming down from heaven. He says in verse nine, uh, "O Jerusalem, Herald of good news, lifted up that he's speaking about your he- the, the head or the countenance of the, the people in, of Israel. He says, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. This is Isaiah saying that God will come and lead his people out of exile. But also here, this is speaking of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. God is going to come and punish Babylon, as he says elsewhere, for her wickedness in punishing Israel too severely. And and in this, God vindicates his people and his name. He's going to come with an outstretched arm against Israel's captors and lead her home. In verse 10, it says, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. This is not a kind of wishy-washy, I'm kind of mad that you're messing with my people kind of situation. God is coming in military array to come and put an end to Babylon's unjust oppression of Israel. You hear that idea, unjust oppression. I thought it was right that God sent her into exile. Yes, it is. But in God's, in God's ways, in his evaluation, in his judgment of the situation, Babylon overreached her, her role at the time to judge Israel and treated her too harshly. It says in verse 10 that his reward is with him and his recompense before him. We know that the Lord renders unto every man the just deserves of his work whether for good or for evil. And so God is coming and he will both deliver Israel and at the same time also get glory over Babylon. He comes at this point in the story to redeem his people, to vindicate his name, and to judge Babylon for her unjust oppression of the people of God. And so he comes with an outstretched arm. This is this is speaking about God's military power, his might, his rule, his authority. And so God comes in mercy both, and in that mercy, he also is judging. At this point, he then moves on to talk about uh, the, the role of Yahweh in the people of, of Israel. Israel had gone off, as we had said, into a wilderness. And at this point in the story, we're faced with how does this begin to tie into Jesus Christ? Right, Israel goes into this spiritual wilderness of her idolatry, that is, she was serving Baal, and she was serving Asherah, and she was uh, serving the gods of the Moabites and the Ammonites, etc., etc. She was playing the harlot, and she was in a wilderness period. She's been exiled, and now she's being returned. But that doesn't mean that everything is right. That simply means that she's back in the land. God still needs to come and lead her into righteousness and this is what it says in verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, he will gather the lambs in his arms, he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. If you remember in the story of the Exodus, uh what what was the main what was one of the main problems with Israel and Egypt living side by side? Well, At at the beginning of the story, uh, the Israelites who come down, the the 12 sons of Jacob who arrive in in Egypt, they are shepherds. And in this place, if you look in the text in, in the book of Genesis, it says that the Egyptians despise shepherds. And so although they're given a little bit of temporary permission to live in the land of Goshen, there is trouble a brewing, And so these shepherds who are living in in Egypt are raising flocks, they're raising young ones, they they are multiplying as God has given them the command to do so, and they amass a great flock. And so part of the the frustration and the tension in the story of the Exodus is that Egypt is an agricultural land. It's a a land of, of kings who exalt themselves as gods who oppress unduly the people of Israel. And Israel is a land of shepherds and a land of herdsmen. And so God brings Israel out and shepherds her through the wilderness time. He, he goes around like a cloud of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night, leading them through the wilderness. And he brings them where? Into a land flowing with milk and honey. Isn't this the great cry of Psalm 23, that the Lord would lead him beside still waters in a lush valley full of pleasant things. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to not only bring her out of Babylon, but also to bring her into a land flowing with milk and honey and causing her to lie down by the streams. In verse 11, it says that he will be like the great shepherd, the true shepherd over the nation of shepherds. And so God is fulfilling his role as the leader of Israel, the true shepherd who brings her not only into the promised land, but causes her to actually thrive there. Now, of course, we understand this as also speaking about Jesus Christ. Christ is prefigured in these verses, for he will come in in the flesh for all of the people of Israel to see. When Jesus arrives on the scene, he begins to, like the cloud of smoke and pillar of fire, he begins to go through the wilderness and to shine brightly so that all of the nation of Israel will take notice of God in the flesh. And in this sense, he then begins to execute his role as the one who has a mighty outstretched arm. But unlike God, Yahweh, coming in judgment against Babylon with a military outstretched arm, Jesus Christ's outstretched arms are only upon the cross, where he demonstrates his mercy and grace, double grace where they deserve double punishment. And at this place, we see the end trajectory of Christmas. Christmas, although it's a wonderful time in which we celebrate Christ's coming, always has the end that he has to come for a particular reason. It's not just his vacation from heaven. God is coming in the flesh so that all Israel will see their sins blotted out and also him coming like a true wise shepherd. This Christ will lead his people away from the wilderness and into the promised land. And in so doing, he proves the covenantal faithfulness of Yahweh throughout all of the Old Testament that Yahweh will truly come and all of Israel will be able to behold him. Until we come to rest under the care of the true shepherd, we can be under no rest at all. This is what the story of of Advent tells us. This is, or sorry, what the season of Advent tells us. It tells us that like Israel, we were continually straying. And until we come and rest under the care of the true shepherd, there will be no rest at all. And in seeing Jesus Christ's rest, which he brings to his people, we have great confidence to come near to him. We're assured that it is right to do so. It's not, a, it's not our attempt to get out from the consequences of our sin. It's not our attempt to clean ourselves up because God himself has declared his intention that we should come and be like a flock. God's desire is to bring us back from our sins, and by coming near, he has made sure it will happen. I want to give an illustration of the difference between attempting to rescue yourself and God coming and saving you. If God wished for you to save yourself, then he would have uh, merely extended his hand. Think about it like this. You are a, a child and you're swimming. Perhaps this may have even happened to you in your life. You're swimming around. And if God was an apathetic God and he didn't really care about you, he may have thrown into the water a life raft, but it's still up to you to take hold of the life raft life raft. You have to actually grab that either floaty thing or the circular thing or the boat, whatever he's extended to you. That would be like God being an apathetic god. But what the incarnation tells us is that God is not like that. God jumps into the pool and he makes sure that you're saved. He comes and gets you. That's what the message of Christmas is about. And and seeing our drowning at the point of of right before rescue, is the season of Advent. And rightly considering our nature to be like grass, which quickly withers, and flowers which fade at the end of a season, we understand our great need. God is not an apathetic God. He comes and jumps in the pool and rescues you. And this is what Christ has done in the Incarnation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would convince us not only of your grace in, in uh, sending your people into exile, but also, Lord, your wonderful grace in bringing them back. Lord, we thank you for what you have done with your people, Israel. Lord, we ask you that, that uh, we would, as, as the true Israel in the church, Lord, that we would understand that you desire to come and rescue us. You are not a God who stands far off, but in Christ Jesus, you came and you rescued us. You made sure that it happened and and that all flesh would see it again together. Lord, we pray that as we journey through this season of Advent, you would not only convince us of our need to be rescued, but also, Lord, we would see your kind, wonderful heart unto that we would glorify you, that we would worship you truly, and that we would be thankful that you came to us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.